The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's, um, let's go ahead and turn over to Revelation 22. All we're going to do is just going to pick up where we left off week before last. And um, we really come down to these last few um, exhortations in the epilogue. We'll start at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for this time where we as your people have been able to come into your presence, offer up to you the sacrifice of praise, and and petition you on behalf of those whom we love and those who are in need. We thank you that you are a prayer-hearing God. And Father, we thank you also tonight for your word, and we pray that you would would bless our time in it as we draw near uh, in this great book. To, uh, To the end, we pray that you'd give us grace and help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll pick up in verse 17, even though I think we, um, or 16, even though I think we've covered that last time. So Jesus is actually directly speaking in verse 16, and he says, I've sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And as the, as the book wraps up, there's a couple of interesting things. First of all, Jesus says, I've sent my angel to testify to you. And um, almost certainly the idea behind this is not just uh, give a testimony. It is, in, in a sense, as a legal witness, right? So the angel is coming as a legal witness to testify to these things. In other words, a legal or, or a forensic testimony. And so the other thing to notice is that it's, it's for the churches, Right? So I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Now, I, I want to say that that's probably, um, is probably more uh, an important observation than, than seems to be on the surface because you think, well, of course, to the churches. Um, but, you know, there's a very prevalent view out there that Revelation 1 to 3 is for the churches, and then Revelation 21 and 22 is for the churches, but everything else is for a time when the church will be raptured and gone. Okay? And so this point of view would actually say the church isn't even mentioned from Revelation 6 through chapter 19. And I want to say that that's, um, that's 
uh, let's see, what's the word? Uh, nonsense and um, baloney, um, or if you prefer older words, malarkey. Um, it just it just is is just not true. Um, and so this this is a book of prophecy. It is an apocalypse, and it is an epistle, and it is given for the churches. All right, and so. Jesus then identifies himself. He says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, the morning, bright morning star. And I would uh, emphasize when Jesus says, uh, I am, that is identification with Yahweh, the great I am. And then he says he's both the root and the descendant of David. And uh, that, that expression, so he's the root and the descendant, or if you want to remember it in a cool way, the root and the shoot, all right? So he is, the, he is not only the offspring of David, which is obvious, but he's also the, the origin of David. So he's David's son, but David's Lord, which, by the way, is exactly the question Jesus asks the Pharisees regarding Psalm 110. How can, how can he say that he's David's son and David's Lord. And so it is really, it's sort of one of those um, titles that you have in the New Testament that, that associates, as it were, Jesus um, with, with the nation Israel. So um, you, you, could, you could think of it this way, is that in the New Testament, there is, a, there is a, um, an Israel Christology, right? So Jesus comes... And everything about Jesus ends up being connected to Israel, not just because he's an Israelite, not just because he's a Jew. Um, everything about Jesus is, is in a sense, um, a, the fulfillment of what the nation was called to do but failed. So if you're, if you're aware of this, then you start to read and you start to see things all over the place for instance, you see all kinds of parallels between Jesus, Moses, and Israel in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you read something like, I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, Jesus wasn't just standing in a vineyard and thought, oh, <laughs> that'd be cool. How about I say, I'm the vine, you're the branches? No, actually, Israel was the vine that actually produced a, a stink crop Jesus is the true vine now, right? So in a sense, Jesus fulfills uh, what Israel is supposed to do. And that shouldn't surprise us because Israel was supposed to fulfill what Adam was supposed to do, right? So you have Adam, failure, Israel, failure, Jesus Christ as the last Adam and the true Israel, success, all right? And so when he says, I'm the, I'm the, um, uh, the, uh, root and branch, so to speak, or the root and the shoot, he's actually making a statement that, yeah, he's an Israelite. He's fulfilling the Davidic promises, but he's more than that, right? He's more than that. He's Israel's king, but he's also uh, Israel's creator, if you will. And so he's also the bright morning star, which comes from, uh, of, of, of all prophets, um, the prophet Balaam. So, I mean, how many of you, like, would thought about naming your kids Balaam? Jeff, any, anyone Balaam? No? 
Um, yeah, so um, Shopes, you guys are going to have more kids. You consider Balaam. Pro- probably not, right? Uh, and so, um, of course, uh, not a notable prophet in, in, in that sense. But this is what he says. You remember um, uh, uh, Barack, not Obama, actually hired him to come and give a curse against Israel. And, of course, um, he's, a, he's a money grubber, right? Jude tells us that, the way of Balaam. And so he uh, is going to go and curse uh, Israel for, uh, for Barak. And he can't. <laughs> God stops him every time, right? And, and the, the best part is when he uses his donkey to stop him, Right? And, um, you know, I don't know exactly what was wrong with Balaam, but he, 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 he talks to his donkey like it was something he did every day. Anyway, um, this is his prophecy. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And so here's this, here's this prophecy. It's pro- By the way, it's probably this prophecy that inspires the Magi to actually look for the natal star, which of course appears in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus himself is the light of the world. Jesus himself is the lamp of the city, which is the new Jerusalem. And so when we read bright morning star, we should think that Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, actually brought about the dawn of a new day and a new age. And now, at the end, um, which is the beginning, He's identified as the bright morning star. And then we have this really fascinating thing. The spirit and the bride say, come. And, um, and uh, years and years ago, we were in the old building. I preached this, uh, this text um, and the, the free offer of the gospel, right? And there's this wonderful sense where here's Jesus and he's identified himself. He's, he's talked about, who he is and what he's done. And now the spirit and the bride say something and they say, they say, come. And what's, what's interesting is that the spirit, the Holy Spirit and the bride have the same message, right? It's come, right? Which of course is going to be an invitation to what? Well, it's an invitation to, to, to Christ, right? But even though they have the same message, When the Spirit says come, you come. When the church says come, you may go, eh, no. So in a sense, it's the difference between what is the effectual call of God, which is the work of the Spirit, and then in a sense, the general call of God, which is the work of the church, right? And so... Have you ever heard anybody ever say something like, um, um, well, um, you Calvinists don't believe in evangelism? You ever heard something like that? I've heard it all. I've heard it for 35 years. You don't believe in evangelism. Oh, we most certainly do. We just actually know who, who, who has the power to save, right? So what does the church do? The bride, the bride is constantly saying, come, 
right? Come to Jesus, come unto him. And uh, if you're weary, you're heavy laden, he'll give you rest. You invite people and you invite people. So, so this, this would be the characteristic of what we would call the general call. The general call is given, first of all, universally. That is, we give it, we give it to as many people as we possibly can, to as many nations as we possibly can. And then we also do it indiscriminately. That is, it's a, it's a call to, to everyone. Okay? You don't actually know who is, whose name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. And so you just, you just invite everybody. And you say, well, how can, I, how can I do that in good conscience, knowing that God has uh, an elect, and what if I invite somebody that's not elect? Okay, well... I, <laughs> Imagine that. Um, so if you, if you get kind of hung up about it, I want to just say that here's, here's the warrant for you inviting everybody universally and indiscriminately is um, God tells you to. Okay? So you can't violate God's command on the basis of your own convoluted theological reasoning. Right? So the, 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 Offer of the gospel goes out. The bride says, come. But then the spirit also says, come. And so how does the spirit say, how does the spirit say, come? So, so you understand that the distinction ends up being that the church, so whether in our preaching or our witness, anytime that you tell somebody about the Lord Jesus, every time a sermon is preached in which the gospel is heard, that, that call goes out, right? And as that call goes out, um, all we can do is, is, is give the, the summons. All we can do is tell people, you're supposed to repent. You're supposed to believe. It's commanded. And so it's external. That's, that's the only thing that we have the power to do is to give an external call. But it's the Spirit of God who actually uh, 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 effectuates an internal call. Right, And so, now what happens, though, is that the Spirit's internal and effectual call works through the church's universal and indiscriminate call. Okay. So, it's, it's not hard um, to, to see how this happens. You have, so I'm just, just haven't seen Steve in a while. So I'll use Steve's dad as an example. So your dad was 83, right? Yeah. And um, he was, he, he was not a godly man. (laughs) He was a hedonist, right? Was that, that'd be a fair description, right? And, um, and so at 83, God sticks him with Steve and Molly, and now he has no choice but to come to church. Okay, so he wouldn't have come to church on his own, right? It's not like he'd have said, Steve, you know what? You know, I think you're such a wonderful Christian. Why don't you take me to church, right? That, that, wasn't, that wasn't George. And so he gets stuck having to come to church because he's on oxygen. He can't be left alone. So he has to come and live with the Nugents. And, and it's like, okay, now you're going to, now you're going to reside at Gospel Central because you're going to be here in the gospel. And, and George comes to church. And, you know, my preaching did nothing for him. 
he would sit there and I, was, I had no doubt that he couldn't wait to get home. All right? But then we had Pastor Ashiel Blaze from London come. And God used Pastor Blaze's preaching to open George's heart. And so the, 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 the call went out. I made the call. George heard the call. Um, George heard the call from Steve for years and years and years. But when it's the Spirit's sovereign time to make that call effectual, there's nothing that can stop it. There's nothing that can stop it. You you have to understand, it's not the listener that's sovereign. It's the spirit that's sovereign. So ultimately, it doesn't depend on how clever the preacher is or how polished he is or how persuasive he is. I think you should should work on your preaching. I think that you you should try to be persuasive. But at the end of the day, it's only the spirit that actually does it. And, and so the spirit says to George Nugent, come. And George is like, okay, I have no choice. I believe that, no choice. George could not have done otherwise. Why? Because George was dead in his trespasses and sins. And when the spirit of God comes with the effectual call of God, what he does is he opens up spiritually blind eyes, opens up a spiritually dead heart, and makes you willing in the day of power. <laughs> and so, so, you know what that means? The bride needs to be busy telling people, come. Now, John outlines it a little more, right? So let the one who hears say come. Who's the one who hears? We have to go back to chapters two and three. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. So in other words, it's not just the body's uh, responsibility to say come. It's every Christian's responsibility to say come. If you're actually one that's had ears to hear what the Spirit says, it's because God has opened your heart, opened your mind. He's given you a persevering faith, and you got the responsibility to tell people, come to Jesus. Let the one who hears say, come. The one with spiritual ears. Let the one who is thirsty come. Now we shift from who's actually telling you to come to uh, now to the one who's thirsty that is let the one who feels their need come well the, the call is universal the call is indiscriminate but the call also in a real sense capitalizes on soul thirst that's the appeal let the one who is thirsty come let the one who knows that he that 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 he or she hungers and thirsts for something more let him come right and so this is I mean, it's just this marvelous open ended invitation and then let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost the only thing that's required of you to come to Christ is to feel your need. That's all. To feel your thirst. To know that you're thirsty. And to know that there is 
that there is water, living water, that will quench your thirst. And it's free. You know, that's, that's exactly what this wretched, wicked world needs to hear. Because at the end of the day, those that hate God, those that go their own way, those that pervert his paths and his truth, at the end of the day, all of that sin does not satisfy their souls. And so you tell them, come, without money and without price. So this obviously is a, uh, harkens back to Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. By the way, the ESV leaves out ho, okay, which is a tragedy because it is a it's it is a street hawker's word getting attention. Okay, that's what the that's what the word is doing, and um, so. I won't tell you a great story when I was witnessing down in Westwood during Biola days about this text, but if, if you want to come ask me afterwards, I'll be happy to tell you. But just notice that. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. And so then uh, the, the next section is a warning And uh, in verses 18 and 19, do not add or take away from the words of this prophecy. And so Jesus says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book, this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now, what's fascinating, and I put the a chart in there for you in your notes, is that this language actually echoes a few passages from Deuteronomy. Now, what's, what's Deuteronomy? Okay, second game of the law, Deutero and then Namas, second law. Um, it's also the last book of the books of Moses, Right Now, it is the law of the covenant, right? So Deuteronomy is, in a sense, the capstone to the covenant document. And so you get over to Revelation 22, and these verses end up, I think, what they're doing is they're summarizing the book of Revelation as not only as a, as a covenant document, but in a sense as a new law code to the church. 
and it's patterned on the old law code to Israel. And so if you just look, you can see, so the Deuteronomy, here the statutes, you shall not add to the word nor take away from it, and it will be when he who hears the words, every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And so here's this, uh, this incredibly stern warning that you don't add to God's words. You don't add to them. And then when you, when you hear the words, if you add to them, every curse that's in this book is going to be added to you. Oh, and your name's going to be blotted out, right? So, so obviously pretty serious warning, right? And one, of course, which Joseph Smith and others should have paid much closer attention to. Now, I want to say, if you look at the one, the, the, the column on the right, notice it is no less severe, right? So, you know, so many times we think old covenant, oh, scary, how scary, how severe, how, uh, how awful. And you get over here, this is every bit of scary. I testify to everyone who hears the words, anyone adds to him, God will add to him the plagues, <laughs> which have been written in this book. There's a lot of plagues. There's bowls, there's seals, there's trumpets. There's all of these judgments. And John says, you add to the words of this book and God's gonna add to you the plagues that are in this book. And then he says, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away uh, his part from the tree of life and from the holy city. I would argue that that actually parallels the idea that the Lord will blot his name out from under heaven. In other words, he's going to be in exile. He's going to be outside of the holy city forever and ever. And so what is it? What is it to, um, to add to God's words? good question, right? What is it to add to God's words? Well, you, you could certainly come up with um, sort of like the obvious, you know, like saying, um, oh, hey, I have uh, fourth John. I just found fourth John, right? So I'm going to add fourth John. Okay? By the way, you do know that even if we found an apostolic letter, that could be authenticated as apostolic, we wouldn't add it to the canon. Okay. You know, we have two Corinthian letters by Paul that are missing. Okay. Let's say we found one and we could actually authenticate it, which would be almost impossible. You wouldn't add it to the canon. Okay. Why? Daniel, you said it yesterday in Greek, or Tuesday. Oh, yesterday is Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. It's not like everything that Paul wrote is automatically inspired just because he's Paul. It's the books that he wrote that God inspired, right? So you, of course, could add books, you know. And um, does anybody add books to the Bible? Huh? Okay, the Apocrypha? Sure. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, when I was Catholic, I loved Bell and the Dragon. That was some exciting stuff. I always wish they'd make it into a movie. Um, but yeah, the Apocrypha, right? So when, when does the church actually add the Apocrypha to the canon? After the Reformation. After the Reformation. It's not until the Council of Trent that the Apocrypha is actually made a part of the canon. Now, okay, they call them deuterocanonical books, okay, like a second canon. Um, but they still add books, right? So, and we're talking about adding to God's words, right? Are there other ways to add to God's words? Uh, I want to say everybody's got to interpret. Yeah, so I think if you change, if you change the words to make your point, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was a God, okay? I think that's, I think that's adding to God's word, right? Are there other ways to add to God's word? Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, Right, and so you go, yeah, so this is a, this is a um, what, do, what do they say, another, this is another testament of Jesus Christ or something like that, right? So that's, that's, that's like blatant, right? That's like totally blatant. Um, are there more subtle ways to add to God's word? Okay, do um, you have any examples off the top of your head? Okay, sure, yeah. Well, yeah, but no, I'm not going to... We're going to be talking about people that are, that are claiming that they believe the Bible. Okay. So, yeah, so stuff that's like blatantly not in the Bible and people that say that it is in the Bible, right? And then using the Bible to show what's not in the Bible is in the Bible, Right? You got that? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's an example. Are there other examples of ways that we can add to the Lord? Yeah, Eddie. <laughs> okay, so, so, yeah, this is, this is where I'm, I'm going. So a person that comes and says, they have a word from God for you, okay? Is that dangerous? Of course it's dangerous. Can God, through his spirit, um, prompt you to say something to somebody that, that they need to hear? Of course, of course. That's different than coming up and saying, thus says the Lord, right? So you think all of these prophets that go around, thus says the Lord, they should be writing their stuff down, right? Well, there wouldn't be any of them left. They'd all have been stoned to death by now, right? Because what did you do with false prophets? Well, you stoned them to death. Um, and so here's the irony, is that people that claim to speak 
directly from God. So we're not talking about um, speaking from God through the word to you, okay? That's legitimate. That's a function of the spirit. It's the way the word is used. I'm talking about people that bypass this and say, I've got a direct line like this, okay? And uh, the stories, we could go on forever, okay? Uh, Of the absolute, uh, oh, yes, Lord? Mm. Yeah, you know what, Jeremy? That's the kind of stuff, right? And guess what? The prophets, so-called, have no problem saying, we're wrong about half of the time. That's not an exaggeration. Mike Bickle, the leader of uh, International House of Pancakes. (laughs) International House of Prayer actually says, yep, we get it wrong. We get it wrong all the time. But that doesn't make us false prophets. (laughs) Really? Okay. I guess my understanding of false must be uh, must be skewed here, right? And um, for instance, this uh, this whole group of them um, in 2020. Guess what they were all saying? All of them, all of them. Trump was going to win by a landslide. God told me. God told me. God told me. Okay. So can you add to God's word like that? Yeah. And I want to say that it's far more dangerous than we often acknowledge. Okay? It just is. So do I want to be do I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Do I want to make sure that my that my words are um are seasoned with grace and are are his words, not directly, but I can speak his words to people? And the answer is, yeah, I want to do that. That's the only way to help people. Okay? But do I want to stand on my own authority and say that I'm God's spokesman and whatever I say actually is, thus says the Lord? No, it's adding to God's word. How do you take away from God's word? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to say, I want to say that's a pretty obvious thing. You're taken away from God's word. How do you do that? Well, just ignore Genesis 19. Forget Romans 1. Don't talk about X, Y, or Z, or LGBTQ+. Okay? Don't talk about it. Act like that. Why? Because Jesus gets us. Okay? By the way, did you pay, did you pay attention to that? Um, those of you who were too sanctified didn't even see it, but Jesus is... Jesus washing all these people's feet. And um, there's a, a trans guy that he's washing his feet. I mean, it's, 
right? So, so we, we can pick and choose stuff and, and then ignore stuff that we don't like. Okay? Is that leaving something out? Is that, is that taking away from God's word? And the answer is yeah. The answer is yeah. So this is why, this is why you have to be committed to the whole counsel of God. So, I would argue that this ends up being a good, um, a good warrant to make sure that you preach consecutively and expositionally through the Bible. Okay? Now, there was one guy that I admire to the moon and back who did not like preaching like that, and his name was Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a textual preacher, waited for the elect text to come down out of heaven, <laughs> and then that's what he would preach. Um, but let me just say, um, I'm not Spurgeon, and neither are you, and neither is anybody else alive today. And so guess what? When you are committed to going through and not skipping, right? it helps you avoid taking away from God's word. You, ha- you have to preach that next verse. Okay? It seems, it, it, it's a little conspicuous if you say, um, well, we just got to, to Romans um, 8, 29, and 30, and we're going to go from Romans 8, 28 to, um, well, let's see, now Romans 10. <laughs> right? You can't just skip. Right? That's the best way to guard against taking away from God's word. And so, um, this warning, does it, does it obviously relate primarily to the book of Revelation? The answer is yeah. It's the words of this book. Okay? But by implication, I would say that, that by, in a sense, the, the, the fact that Revelation is the final revelation of Jesus Christ, that this warning applies to the totality of the canon. So, in other words, um, I I think Revelation is, in fact, the last book that's written, but let's just say 1st, 2nd, 3rd John were written after John got off of of Patmos, which is possible. Um, The Apocalypse is still the final revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So, it is, in a sense, the canonical capstone and so the idea is that the inscriptional, in, yeah, inscriptional um, curse, anybody that adds to the words, um, or the uh, canonical sanction, you can't take away from these words, seems to me to be something that would apply to all of God's words in all 66 books, all right? Okay, that brings us to the last two verses. He who testifies of these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so here Jesus actually concludes the book himself. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Right? And so, by the way, as I, as I mentioned before, this expression that he's coming, he's coming quickly, is used repeatedly in the epilogue. It's all throughout the book, but it is, it is heavily concentrated here. And the idea is, is that he is right at the door, and he's ready to return. Okay? 
when you read these words, yes, I'm coming quickly. This is how you should, this is how you should take them. Don't take them like, um, okay, well, where's that going to fit on the chart? Okay. Take them like this. These are Jesus's words that are a pledge to his people. He's coming. He's going to come again. And so that is, that is his pledge to us. He is right at the door. And um, somebody brought up a really good question um, uh, Lord's Day before last, when preaching on uh, Romans 11 and, um, and, and Jewish people being converted at the end of the age. And we have this idea of 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 imminency, which is that Jesus could return just like just like that, right? Imminent return. And what I want to say is that um, first of all, the the imminent idea is is most directly tied to pre-tribulational rapture. I want to say that imminence is actually not the biblical perspective. You say, well, how in the world could you say that? Do I believe that Jesus um, can return anytime he pleases? And the answer is, of course I do, all right? But is it necessarily imminent? I want to say no. So just... Humor me for a second. So, Jesus is walking um, with um, with John and Peter on the sea after the resurrection. Okay, and Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to be executed. Right. And then Peter says, well, what about him? Speaking of John. And Jesus says, well, if I desire him to, re, uh, to remain until I come, what business of it is yours? All right. So very clearly, there were two things. One, Peter needed to be crucified, right? And then the other was that John would most definitely outlive Peter. Okay. Those are the words of Jesus. You see where I'm going with this, right? Those things had to happen, right? So at least until John was dead, there was no sense of eminence because Peter had to be crucified and then John had to outlive Peter, right? And so I want to say that there actually are things that, that need to happen at the end of the age that we can observe, right? Now, when he says, I'm coming quickly, maybe the idea is I'm coming suddenly. But I'd also remind us that there are other comings of Christ in the book of Revelation that are not always strictly a reference to the second coming. Sometimes he promises to come quickly is an act of judgment. 
So here's our Lord's pledge to the church. I'm right at the door. I'm coming back for you. I'm coming quickly. You're like, man, man, I I wish I had a better grasp of what Jesus meant by quickly. (laughs) Right? But I'll tell you what. It's the Lord's patience, 2 Peter 3, 9, that delays his coming. Not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so this is his pledge to us. This is our this is this is our Lord's this is our Lord's vow to his bride. Okay. And so those are precious words. And so what does the church say? Well the church says, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. <laughs> That's that's the prayer right there. So the church's response, amen. I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. What a good prayer to pray. And it's not just it's not just the the prayer to pray when you feel um when you feel desperation. It's not just the prayer to pray when things are are going wrong. Oh Lord, please 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 return, right? It's not the prayer. So I grew up being a pre-trib, just like most of you guys did too. And, you know, you're going into your geometry final and you're like, Lord, if there was ever a time for you to come back, like now would be like it, okay? Um, We're not talking about that. We're talking about, the bride's response to the groom's pledge. Amen. Even so, come quickly. And so, I don't know how all the timetable stuff works and all of that, but I will tell you this. If it was today, I'd be perfectly good with it. How about you? Then there's this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. So a typical New Testament benediction, right? That sounds like maybe something Paul would write. But what I want to say is there's nothing extra or, or nothing ordinary about it. And so, so here, here you have the picture. So he's coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, what about until he comes? Grace be with you. Grace be with you the grace that you actually need to strengthen you, the grace that you need to cheer you, to comfort you, the, the grace that you need to, to deepen your own expectancy, the grace that you need to bolster your own resolve, the grace that you need to walk in obedience, the grace that you need for endurance in faith. I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And until you do, may your grace be with us all. And here's the wonderful thing. Is that all of the grace that you need to endure, all the grace that you need to continue believing, all the grace that you need 
to make it to the finish line. He will supply because he is a gracious God. And so when we read these last few words, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, makes you realize just how badly we need that grace each and every day. It's absolutely just happily stunned that Liz's niece choosing a lifestyle of, of really rebellion against God and just living her life the way she wanted to live it. And you know what? If it weren't for God's grace, that's what we all would do. All of us. Okay? There's not a single one of us here that would be exempt from going our own way, being our own God, doing our own thing. And the truth is, is that most often the way a person lives is the way they'll die. And then there's grace. And then there's grace. So J.C. Ryle reminded us that there were two thieves on the cross. One, teaching us not to presume. And the other, teaching us not to despair. And so the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. And then, amen. Amen. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It's been a blessing to me. I hope it's been to you. And I hope that... Um, regardless of what your certain positions on all of the, how it all shakes out, uh, hopefully on this, we all agree together and rejoice, and that is Jesus is going to come back in the same way that he left, and it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous book, and we pray that, Lord, we pray that we would guard really all of your words that we would so cherish them, that we would so reverence them, that we would never dare think of adding to them, Lord, or taking away from them. And Father, we, we hear in this closing passage just the tenderness of the bridegroom, that he's not going to leave us as orphans. He's going to return. And so, Father, we with one heart and one voice say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.